Chapters 42 through 44 are part of the narrative closure of the biography or the career of Jeremiah. But in order to assess their place uh, in this section, which spans chapters 40 to 44, I want to review what we said last week and put this week's into the structure so that you see the overall development. So we begin with uh, Act 1 as we designated it last week, chapter 40, verses 1 to 6, where we have the duplication of Jeremiah at the beginning and ending of that short narrative unit. You'll recall that in that section, Jeremiah was released from accidental imprisonment or uh, enchainment, being chained up in fetters, and uh, prepared for transport to Babylon with other exiles who were on their way to captivity. Nebuchadnezzar released him, and therefore Jeremiah's transport was vacated in this first act. Now, there's another thing to note about that section. Now, Jeremiah appears in that narrative unit without any of the subsequent antagonists that we will meet in this uh, final narrative drama. So, uh, Jeremiah's transport vacated, and Jeremiah, the only character here, besides Nebuchadnezzar without the antagonists. All right, now in Act 2, we noted that there is, again, an inclusio or framing bracket around the unit. And it is the language of Gedaliah's appointment. He is appointed over the land, uh, what's left of the land of Judah, at the beginning and ending of Act 2. So we have a narrative unit in this uh, act in which Jeremiah is absent. His name does not appear at all. So Jeremiah is present in Act 1. Jeremiah is absent in Act 2. In Act 2, between 47 and 41.18, only the antagonists in this narrative appear. So notice what we're uh, beginning to see. In Act 1, Jeremiah without the antagonist. In Act 2, only antagonist without Jeremiah. So it's a somewhat uh, um, reflective, uh, ironic, but nonetheless uh, developing narrative paradigm. All right, now that brings us to the focus this evening to Act 3, the three chapters 42 to 44, which I have divided into four scenes. Now, the key to the division is the parallel uh, vocabulary. Once again, we're noticing framing devices, vocabulary which is duplicated duplicated in Act 1 and Act 2, which frames the narrative unit. Something's going on in terms of the narrative drama by this framing pattern. The framing pattern here in Act 3, Scene 1, is the list of the dramatis personae plus the phrase said to Jeremiah, which sets up this uh, the chapter 42, verses 1 to 22. All right, now the term dramatis personae we've had before. Uh, anyone remember what that means? 
Christina, you're muttering back there. Go ahead. The persons of the drama. All right. And you'll notice the names of the persons in the drama in verse 1 of chapter 42. And that pattern occurs once again in verse 2 of chapter 43, plus the same phrase said to Jeremiah. So scene 1 is chapter 42 of Act 3. Scene 2 is chapter 43, verses 1 through 7. Now, Jeremiah obviously has returned to the narrative. He was absent in Act 2, present in Act 1. He now is present again in Act 3. He returns uh, along with the antagonist for the Dramatis Personae in chapter 42, 1 and 2, and 43, 2 are his antagonists. They are antagonistic towards him, as we will note. All right, now there is a hook pattern in chapter 43. Let's see if you can pick it out. Take a look at chapter 43, verse 7, and then observe chapter 43, verse 8, and let me see if you can come up with the hook pattern. The mot crochet, as they say in French, the crocheted pattern. Tapanese, yes. It's the name of the city in Egypt, which is uh, listed at the end of verse 7 and again in verse 8. So we have a sequential narrative. Scene 2 is hooked to scene 3, which continues the drama uh, of this act, of this third act as I've labeled it. All right, now in this third scene of Act 3, from verses 8 to 13 of chapter 43, we have the final symbolic act of Jeremiah, only it is a symbolic act outside of the land of Judah, plus its interpretation, a symbolic act which Jeremiah performs in Egypt. That leaves scene four, which is the dialogic exchange between Jeremiah and the people, which is the substance of chapter 44 in its entirety. Now here, you will notice a very interesting set of duplications once again. The uh, chapter opens with Jeremiah making a declaration of, thus says the Lord God of hosts, God of Israel. He repeats that in verse 11, so we have this duplicate pattern once again. Jeremiah speaks twice, and then the people of Israel uh, reply, and uh, two groups of them reply. The men reply and the women reply. And these people who are replying are the idolaters of Judah who have gone down into Egypt. And they're defending their uh, worship of idolatry uh, in Egypt over against Jeremiah's warnings that uh, they should not be bowing down to the uh, idols of Egypt. And finally, uh, Jeremiah speaks once again in verses uh, 44:20 and 44:24, so that we have a sandwich device in which Jeremiah speaks twice, 44:2 to 14. Jeremiah speaks twice, 44:20 to 30, and sandwiching in between 
is the dialogue with the men and women of, of Judah who have descended with him into Egypt and their rejection of his word, which is emphatically sandwiched or bracketed by Jeremiah's own uh, rebuke and his exhortation. All right, so Act 3, like Act 1, features Jeremiah. Only unlike Act 1, where the antagonists do not appear, in Act 3, Jeremiah appears with the antagonists. The sequence then goes from Act 1, Jeremiah without antagonists, Act 2, no Jeremiah but the antagonists, Act 3, Jeremiah with the antagonists. It is a sequential narrative development, but you'll notice that the larger pattern is that Jeremiah and Jeremiah himself sandwiches the antagonists in Act 2, where he does not appear. <clears throat> Jeremiah then is the measure of the uh, word of God, the measure of the authority of the Lord uh, in this sequence. Uh, he is the measure of this drama. Though in Act 3, Jeremiah's transport to Egypt is dictated. His transport to Babylon in Act 1 was vacated. His transport to Egypt is dictated. He is forced into Egypt. All right, now, let's notice one other thing with respect to scene 1 and scene 2. The location of scene one is Jeremiah and the people in the land of Judah. They end up at the end of scene two at the hook pattern uh, going towards Egypt. Okay, In scene three, they are in Egypt. And they end up in scene four on the road to death. In Judah, down to Egypt... Scene 1 and 2, scene 3 and 4, in Egypt, down to death. Now, this narrative pattern uh, holds this whole unit together so that it's not just the story of what happened to Jeremiah. It's the story of the ongoing irony, the ongoing hardness of heart. The ongoing refusal to listen to the word of God that haunts this uh, remnant element of uh, Judah that compels uh, Jeremiah and Baruch to go down into Egypt with them in flagrant disobedience of God's command and God's will. And as if that were not bad enough, when they do end up in Egypt, they flagrantly disobey him again by bowing down to the idols of Egypt and the idols of the nations. <clears throat> we then have a somewhat remarkable narrative irony. Before 586 B.C., when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem, Jeremiah was urging the people of Jerusalem to go out to Nebuchadnezzar to surrender to him, to go out of the land into exile, and they would live. If they remained in the land, if they fortified or shut themselves up in Jerusalem in order to defend themselves, they would die. And many of them did in that siege of Jerusalem, in fact, to several sieges of Jerusalem. 
But notice after 586 B.C., after the destruction of Jerusalem, Jeremiah warns those that are still there, if they go out of the land, they will die. If they stay in the land, they will live. The pivot point of the destruction of Jerusalem emphasizes or underscores the fact that the remnant that went to Babylon is the living remnant. The the remnant of the remnant that goes down into Egypt is the dead remnant. The remnant that goes to Babylon will eventually come back. That is, their descendants will eventually come back. The remnant that goes down into Egypt will not come back. They will die in Egypt. Their line will disappear. And so uh, this section of the story of Jeremiah is a reminder that even after God had brought his wrath upon the city of Jerusalem, having warned them that it would certainly come, and they having been eyewitnesses that it did certainly come, they learned absolutely nothing from it. It was as if they could have been attacked again and again and again and again and would never have listened to what the word of the Lord had told them to do. And so we come to the second part of the outline where we notice the narrative echoes in this section, which remind us of the very things Jeremiah had said from the day he began to begin to prophesy to the nation of Judah and Jerusalem in a career that lasted more than 40 years from King King Josiah's day to Zedekiah's day and after. When I say narrative echoes, in these chapters, 42 to 44, we find the very same expressions, the very same language, the very same dynamic that was present before Jerusalem was burned to ashes and the temple was leveled and destroyed. One would think that having been slapped upside the head by a hard dose of reality, namely death, destruction, mayhem, rape, looting, having been slapped upside the head with this reality of God's judgment and, in fact, his wrath, having been warned that it was coming, and, in fact, it came, that they would have listened. They would have listened when the very same prophet told them, don't go down to Egypt. But what do we find them doing? We find Johanan, the antagonist in this unit, and the people refusing to hear the word of God from his servant prophet, Jeremiah. They will not listen. They stubbornly rebel. And so those phrases, they would not listen, they did not obey, are sprinkled through chapters 42, 43, and 44. Once again, notice that after the fall of Jerusalem, the hard-hearted children of Judah are still as obstinate, they are still as stubborn, they are still as willfully disobedient as they were before. Death, destruction, looting, rape, 
did not make one iota's worth of difference to them. And were it not bad enough that they refused to listen to the word of the Lord, they accuse the prophet of the word of the Lord of being a liar. Notice in chapter 43, verse 2, the arrogant men of, uh, of Jeremiah's antagonists say, you are telling a lie. Now, this is the same kind of accusation that Jeremiah received before the fall of Jerusalem in chapter 37, verse 14. You remember the story of Jeremiah going out of the north gate of Jerusalem before the collapse of the city, probably to look at that field that he had purchased uh, as a testimony to the promise of the return that God had indicated. And Elijah, the guard at that gate, accused Jeremiah of lying, namely that he was going to go over to the enemy. He was going to betray his nation by selling out to the Babylonians who were uh, besieging the city. Now here, uh, the, the charge of deceit is also a charge of treachery. You do not, uh, you will not allow us to have our way. Uh, you are a ally of Babylon, and we are fleeing Babylon. Uh, we are running for our lives. And Jeremiah replies, you are running not for your lives, but for your death. For God has told you not to go down to Egypt. <clears throat> Jeremiah had also been accused earlier in his career of being a false prophet. You may remember in chapter 28, Hananiah accused Jeremiah of prophesying falsely. We had chapter 23 of the book of Jeremiah, in which Jeremiah himself contrasts a true and false prophet. There was a whole school of false prophets in Jerusalem and Judah in Jeremiah's day. And so he was not contending only with one individual or with a small group of individuals. He was contending with a whole union of false prophets. Hananiah being the most exemplary of the bunch who died for the trouble of accusing Jeremiah of being a false prophet. God took his life. Now, this group of people that go down into Egypt with Jeremiah are a people possessed. They are a people obsessed. They are a people possessed and obsessed with the love of the Lord God Jehovah. No, with the love of the idols of the nations. Love of the idols that they had probably worshipped in Judah before the collapse of the nation in 586. And now they're running to Egypt so they can have the liberty of worshipping those idols without having to worry about the Babylonians, so they think. But they are obsessed with this idolatry. As you notice that section in chapter 43, verses 15 to 19, their language is actually absolutely contemptuous. They defy Jeremiah. They are devoted to the queen of heaven, whoever she is. We'll talk about that in a moment. Which means that they're also devoted to that kind of category of idolatry. They're absolutely obsessed with it. In fact, they have their children involved in it. This is a covenant of, uh, of idolatry. 
These are covenant children of idolaters. These are not covenant children of Israel, of Yahweh, but they're covenant children who are trained up in idolatry and even assisting their mothers and fathers in the practices of the devotion to the ten gods. But they are self-deceived, as Jeremiah points out in verse 20 of chapter 42. You have only deceived yourselves, for it is you who sent me to the Lord your God, saying, pray for us. The echo here is the self-deception which also took Gedaliah unawares when he would not believe that uh, Johanan was warning him of Ishmael's treachery. And Ishmael, of course, assassinated Gedaliah because Gedaliah had deceived himself with his own uh, presumption, with his own uh, sense that, no, uh, my friend Ishmael will not do that to me. He won't stab me in the back, let alone slit my throat. But he does. Ishmael does. And Gedaliah dies out of his willful Self-deceit. He would not listen to the warning that he was given, and therefore he received the uh, fruit or the just reward of his own foolishness. Now, this group of people had asked Jeremiah to pray for them. This is not the first time that we've had people come to Jeremiah in uh, the book of Jeremiah, come to him and ask them, ask him to pray for them. You remember on several occasions, God had told Jeremiah not to pray for the people. And we had explained that to mean that Jeremiah was not to pray at that time for the people. But nonetheless, there are other occasions in which he does intercede. And here is a case where he is petitioned to pray for this group of people that is uh, going down into Egypt. But when Jeremiah prays and delivers the answer that God has given in chapters 42 and 43, the people reject that word. They do not uh, listen to what uh, the, the, the praying prophet has learned. Even as Zedekiah, who on a number of occasions asked Jeremiah to pray for him and then refused the answer that Jeremiah delivered. Why would you ask anybody to pray for you if you've already made your mind up you're not going to listen to them when they give you an answer? When they express their concern for you as a result? Why would you waste your breath asking them to pray if you're not willing to listen to their comment about their response to their prayer? Now, we're not talking about people receiving inspired answers to prayers these days. That doesn't happen. But there is this bond of response, this bond of union in which you ask somebody to pray and then you come back to that person and say, I've been praying for you and, you know, I'm checking up on how things are going with you and you're drawing one another into the fellowship of the bond of the Spirit in that interchange because you're interested in them and you're praying for the interest you have in them and you're also interested in the report of what's going on with them. Because you're interested in listening or you're interested in understanding or you're interested in sharing what the Lord may be doing. Not this bunch. They're not interested in what Jeremiah 
says any more than Zedekiah was interested in what Jeremiah says when he beseeches the Lord and the Lord gives him a clear answer. Well, this rejection of Jeremiah is part parcel of what has been going on throughout this book. The phrase, I have sent my servants the prophets, rising early in the morning. So God over and over again reminds the children of Judah throughout the book of Jeremiah that he had sent the prophets to them. Uh, So this echo in chapter 44, verse 4 is uh, reminiscent of something we've seen in the nation of Judah before the collapse of Jerusalem in 586. But in verse 4 of chapter 44, Jeremiah notes that they are practicing abominations. Now, we have looked at this word before. And uh, we think of abominable things as, uh, oh, you know, idolatry, that's an abomination in and of itself. But this is more than idolatry. It is idolatry, but it is a particular kind of idolatry, which is abominable. And that is what Jeremiah is citing here, and it is something that he has cited elsewhere in this book. What is the specific abomination that he is citing with this word? Is burning their children in fire, correct. It's sacrificing their living children, their living infants, to the gods of uh, Moab and Ammon, uh, Chemosh and Moloch. And consequently, in chapter 32, verses 34 to 35, you'll note the reference to that. So this is not just the abomination of idolatry. This is, the, this is the abomination of infanticide. This is the abomination of killing living children. This is the abomination of taking a living baby and putting it into the hot hands of an idol and burning it, incinerating it alive. So this type of abomination is still being pursued by these idolaters. It is that type of abomination which he is warning them about, as if, once again, they had not learned their lesson about surrendering this. Abomination. Can we label abortion anything less? Can we say anything less about Mr. Gosnell in Philadelphia? Can we say anything less about the nurses, supposed nurses, who are involved in this butchery? Can we say anything less about this evil in our nation, this absolute murder and the horror of the way they murder? An abomination indeed, indeed. We are not as advanced in our civilization as we may think. In fact, this same practice of killing children alive was present in Canaanite and uh, pagan culture in the ancient world. Now, the final element here of the narrative echoes is this rejection of the I am with you promise. That's the Emmanuel promise, as we've labeled it throughout the book of Jeremiah, In chapter 30, verse 11, also you might want to make a note, chapter 15, verse 20, 
when they decide to go down into Egypt, they not only reject the word of the Lord, they not only reject the prophet of the Lord, his person, his authority, but they reject the Lord himself in terms of his Emmanuel presence. They will not have God with them, which is the reason they embrace the idols. They don't want God, Emmanuel, they want Baal or Astarte or Ishtar or some other tin god or the Egyptian god Ra. So I placed this at the end of this catalog of rejection because this is the most wicked of all. For if you will not have Emmanuel to be with you, then you stubbornly have refused the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the eschatological Emmanuel of God. If you will say, I will not have God with me in my life, then you can no more have the Lord Jesus with you in your life. This generation then that rejects this promise is rejecting the fulfillment of that promise in its fleshed out reality, the incarnation of the second person of the Godhead. How can you willfully reject Emmanuel who has come to be with you for the sake of your redemption? Are you so hard of heart that you will not hear the voice of the Son of God who calls you to be with him who has come to be with you? so that you may not die, but live forever with him. The finality of this last narrative echo is the most gripping of all, in my opinion, because it involves more than God the Lord of hosts. It involves the Son of God the son of that Lord God of hosts. It involves his presence, not only in terms of promised anticipation in the book of Jeremiah, but actualized realization in the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the New Testament. What a fearful weight of judgment. What a fearful weight of judgment you choose. When you say, I will not have Jesus with me. I will not have God with me. I am the master of my soul. I am the captain of my fate. You are? Well, you're really not. I pray that you will bend your knee before the Lord Jesus. All right, now that brings us to some of the details of this narrative. 
beginning with the second verse of chapter 42, where the antagonists in verse 1 ask Jeremiah to petition the Lord and to ask the Lord what they should do. Now, I've asked in the outline whether this is a sincere request or whether it's a fait accompli. What's that phrase, fait accompli, mean? A done deal, yes. An accomplished fact. Now, why do I ask whether it's a done deal? Because of the rejection later on. True, true. But here they are asking for him to pray and give them guidance. We know they're going to reject it. We've already anticipated that. But have they already decided here in verse 2? Okay, how do you know? Because they so quickly didn't want God's advice. Uh, I, I, I like that answer, but it's not right. How do you know? You already know that they have no intention of listening. How do you know? Look at verse 17 of chapter 41. They've already got their mind made up. So when they ask Jeremiah to pray for them, they're only attempting to get Jeremiah to verify the decision that they've already made. You know people like that? You know people who ask you to pray for them? Because they want you to pray for a particular thing because they've already got their mind made up as to what they want? <laughs> Be a pastor for a while. You run into a lot of them. <laughs> now, I'm not, I'm not uh, being cynical about their sincerity in every case, but I am in some cases because they're, they're standing in company like this. Okay. So you have to be very careful about discerning <laughs> uh, what's going on in their minds when they pull these games. All right, so this really is not an honest request of Jeremiah. The previous chapter indicates that they've already decided to head down to Egypt. They've got their bags packed. They've got their boarding pass in their pocket. They're ready to boogie, okay? So when they come to Jeremiah, asking him to pray for them, they want his stamp of approval. You know, it's like a Catholic who wants the Pope's imprimatur. Put the stamp of approval upon what I'm going to do. Jeremiah still prays for them. And when he does, the answer is, don't go down to Egypt. That's not the answer we wanted. You didn't properly discern the spirit. Our spirit, what we want. We hired you to give us what we want. All right. Now, in verse 3 of chapter 43, we have to ask what they're doing. What are they doing? Susan, your head's up. Is that is that the is that the uplifted head of all knowing? Not all knowing, no. Um, well, they just said that they don't believe him because they think that he's trying to betray them. 
Who's, who's the character in verse 3 that completely flabbergasted you? Where did he come from? <laughs> oh, is he the scribe? Baruch? Baruch. Who's Baruch? Who is Baruch, is it? Was he the scribe? He's the scribe. <clears throat> A scribe of what? You're doing well. You can hold your head up again. <laughs> um, I don't remember. The scribe of Jeremiah? Scribe of Jeremiah, right? Doing what with Jeremiah? What does the scribe do? He's writing it down. Yeah, writing down what? Jeremiah's prophecy. Right, Jeremiah's words, right? Chapter 36, he's recording what Jeremiah dictates or writes. And what happens to that? What's he record them on? The scroll. A scroll. And what happens to that scroll? Uh, it gets burned. Who burned it? Uh, You're doing so well. <laughs> Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim. King Jehoiakim feeds it into his brazier. Yes. Okay. Now, how does Baruch get into this story? And he's not only here in verse 3, he's also in what other verse in this chapter? They want somebody to blame it on. Now, what verse? I'm coming back to you. Be warned. All right. Notice verse 6. Okay, he's in verse 3 and in verse 6 again. All right, now, go ahead, Cheryl. What were you saying? I was saying he's, they want, the people want someone to blame it on. Very good. (laughs) So they're looking, they're looking for a what? One word. Uh, he said scapegoat. That's it. That's the word I want. He read my mind. <laughs> Robert says it's the first time in four years I've read his mind. <laughs> Always trying to figure out what answer he wants. <laughs> Very good. All right. So they're looking for a scapegoat. They blame Baruch, which means, what does that mean about Baruch? Since we're surprised to see him here. Well, he's closely associated with Jeremiah. Good. So because of that, they want to use, they want to... But how did he get into the picture? How is he even here? Well, doesn't he just like sort of follow Jeremiah around? Good. All right. So what did they do? They not only forced Jeremiah to go down to Egypt, right? They press ganged Baruch to go with him. So they forced both of them to go. Now, it is true, the text doesn't say he was forced to go down. But nonetheless, Jeremiah had said, no, don't go down. Do you think Jeremiah would go down voluntarily if he weren't coerced? If he weren't compelled? No, he wouldn't have. So he's been strong-armed. He's been forced to go down with them. In other words, his transport has been dictated in this scene which is the antithesis of his transport being vacated by the Babylonians. So the parallel, that is the ironic reciprocal parallel between the two, takes Jeremiah by force down into Egypt. There's no other way to explain how he's in this group of people that descends into Egypt, along with Baruch. And Baruch, as Cheryl pointed out, is always alongside of Jeremiah. So he comes back into the narrative because where Jeremiah goes, 
he goes. Where Jeremiah is, he's the mirror of the prophet. Where Jeremiah is, he's the recording secretary for the prophet. Baruch is so loyal to Jeremiah that when Jeremiah is forced down into Egypt, he goes too. Now, I'm not denying that he may not have been strong-armed at the same time, but he follows him down into Egypt because he does not want to be separated from this man whom he has served, served for more than 20 years. All right, so we have a little cameo of the loyalty of Baruch and, shall we say, the kind of inseparable bond between Jeremiah and Baruch, even in adversity in this case, that he won't leave him and he goes with him into Egypt. And that's the implication of verse 6, and actually verse 3. And that's the reason I placed it there in the outline, to cause you to think about why they're there, particularly why Baruch there in the company of Jeremiah, they have both been forced or coerced to descend into Egypt. Now, Ben pronounced Toponese correctly for us. Uh, earlier, and there you have a, uh, a kind of phonetic pronunciation of the word. It's actually a Greek word uh, for a, a, a town that was probably uh, populated by uh, actually Greek mercenary soldiers that had been imported uh, earlier in the uh, Egyptian uh, empire. <clears throat> we come to verse 10 then. Here in this uh, 43rd chapter, in which God says that he's going to send Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he'll spread his canopy uh, over the land of Egypt and strike it. This is an interesting prophecy because we have only one small line from the Chronicle of Chaldean Kings, which I've mentioned before, the Babylonian Chronicle, a small line from Nebuchadnezzar's annals in that chronicle. <clears throat> uh, the fulfillment of this prophecy is not recorded in the Bible. So uh, we're left to wonder when it happened. But we have this line, as I said, in the uh, annals of Nebuchadnezzar, which indicated that he uh, launched a campaign against Egypt in 568-567 B.C. Now, that's all we know. Uh, We know that the Pharaoh at that time was Amasis II or Amos II. And we don't know why he did it. We know he did do it because the Chronicle indicates that he did it. We don't know why he did it. He did not remain there. He did not occupy Egypt. It seems as if it was a punitive invasion, namely an invasion to punish Egypt or the Pharaoh Amasis II for some particular reason. And so consequently, historians are left to guess as to what motivated Nebuchadnezzar to come all the way across the Levant and down into Egypt. I think the most reasonable suggestion is 
that the Pharaoh of Egypt, Amasis II, was meddling in affairs in Asia, and by my prophesies that it will happen, but this is some 20 years beyond Jeremiah, where Jeremiah is at this point, uh, close to 586, 582 B.C., um, <clears throat> so uh, within uh, 15 or 20 years after uh, the collapse of Jerusalem. Any questions about that? It's, in other words, it's verified that, in fact, he did come, but he doesn't come with, you know, a great occupational army. He comes to, you know, punish them and to leave. All right, now we arrive at verse 13 of chapter 43, and we'll take our break and resume uh, after the break with that verse. You have a map there in your packet. It's map number 164 in the Carta Bible Atlas and shows the path of the descent into Egypt. by way of Migdol and Topanes and Memphis, and then on down uh, to the land of Pathros, which is also mentioned uh, in verse 1 of chapter 44. But in verse 13, we're, talk, we're told about the obelisks of Heliopolis. Now, Heliopolis is a Greek compound word, uh, polis means city in Greek. And helio uh, is the word for sun. So city of the sun, which in Hebrew is Beth Shemesh. Beth meaning house, sometimes temple, house of the sun. And this refers to the temple of the Egyptian sun god, the god Ra, uh, outside of Memphis. So as you look at your map, uh, you would know where this temple or uh, this location uh, may be found. On that map, you'll notice that there's an enlargement of an island in the Nile, uh, an island which later on would become the center of a, a Jewish community. And that uh, group of Jews uh, called that location Elefantine. <clears throat> and there are papyrus that have been discovered on those islands that uh, <clears throat> are intertestamental uh, Jewish records. Uh, so that there are important discoveries that have been made in that location. Now, chapter 47, in the 34, rather, verse 7, has a statement from the Lord that he's going to cut off man and woman, child and infant from among Judah. The word for infant here in the Hebrew 
is translated in the King James Version, sucklings, uh, babes or nursling infants, babes at the breast. God is indicating here that he's going to cut them off. Now, you could say that generally he's going to cut them off in that there's not going to be any line of descent from them. However, the word cut them off in verse 11 is stronger than just simply there's not going to be any descent arise from those uh, infants. Namely, they're not going to have any, they're not going to grow up to have any children of their own. The word cut off or the phrase cut off here is equivalent to uh, God's woe. He is setting his face against them for woe. And in verse 8, if we look again up above, a cutoff is also identified with becoming a curse. Now, this is not the first time that infants have been described by God as being an object of curse or judgment. Chapter 6, verse 11 Jeremiah also uh, reveals the Lord's word on this matter. And in chapter 9, verse 21, there are several places then in the book of Jeremiah where God indicates that he is going to curse infants or sucklings with his judgment. He's going to pronounce his woe and cut them off. Uh, Verse 29, he's going to punish them. Keep in mind that these are covenant children. These are children of Judah, ostensibly uh, part of the covenant community which uh, exists in tatters uh, in uh, Judah and what's left of Jerusalem. Uh, Ostensibly, if they were male children, they had been circumcised as was the custom. Uh, Even though their parents may have been idolaters, they would have covered all of their bases, and so here we have a covenant infants threatened with being cut off with a curse of condemnation. Raises the issue of the status of infants, and these infants are worthy of condemnation, judgment, or God's curse. Now, this should not strike us as unusual. Uh, Not only are we biblical Christians, but we're also Reformed Christians. And we understand that all infants, including nursling and suckling infants, come into the world guilty of original sin. In Adam, all die. All infants newborn are guilty of of original sin by virtue of their descent from their first father, Adam. In fact, in the Old Testament, circumcision was a declaration of that original sinful contamination because at eight days of age, when a male infant was circumcised, he was being described, he was being told vividly by that act that sin needed to be cut off from his life. It needed to be severed from his existence. In other words, there was something about his soul, about his life that was unclean and needed to be removed. 
The same thing is true when we present infants for baptism, is it not? When we have a child baptized, a young infant, we are indicating that the child needs to be washed. There is something about the child that needs to be cleansed. It needs to be cleansed by what the water symbolizes, namely the work of the Holy Spirit. And so we are not naive about the condition of infants. We acknowledge with our Old Testament fathers and mothers that they carry the taint of original sin and a need to be cut off from their lives. And when we bring them to the baptismal font under the new covenant, that they are also tainted by original sin. And though we put a sign of water upon them to testify to the fact that they need to be cleansed from that original sinfulness. <clears throat> These infants were in the same condition. They needed to be cleansed of their sinful state, their sinful state by Adamic transgression, particularly, or by original sin. And so to expose these infants to the wrath of God, for God to leave them in their original sinful condition was within his sovereign right. And here he is indicating he exercises his sovereignty in light of the fact that they have come into Egypt, which is a land which he has warned their parents not to descend into. And so he cuts them off from life, which is his life, and uh, and abandons them to the punishment that their original sin justly deserves. That means that when we deal with the question of infant salvation or infant damnation, we're left uh, with the language of the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 10, paragraph 3, namely that elect infants dying in infancy are saved by a work of grace. Obviously, that's the only way any infant's going to be saved that dies in infancy, is it not? The infant is not going to be saved because it's innocent. In other words, there's no point in putting the water on it if we think the the infant is innocent. There's no point in circumcising the eight-day-old male Jewish baby if we think that that Jewish baby is innocent. We're talking in those symbols about the fact that there's something about this child that needs to be removed, needs to be cleansed, needs to be cut off, needs to be washed away. And that is its original sinful estate. Or why do babies die? If they're innocent, they're not going to die. The wages of sin is death. God doesn't execute innocent people. God brings the exposure of death to those that are worthy of it. He's perfectly just, perfectly righteous in all his ways. And when we experience or or see the sacrament of baptism, we are understanding, we are identifying what. In fact, the parents even have to confess that, that our children are born in sin. Do you confess that? Do you acknowledge that? Do you believe that? Okay, So they are born in sin. They carry this corruption of original transgression with them from Adam's uh, guilt and and packed on. In Adam we all die because in Adam we all sinned, Romans 5, verse 12 uh, through 14. Uh, Therefore, uh, we're not naive about this matter. And here God is exercising his sovereignty in bringing his wrath to bear upon these infants. He's cutting them off from life. He's cutting them off from uh, from the promises. He's cutting them off by uh, by abandoning them to the just desert of their Adamic transgression. So go back to the Westminster Confession. <clears throat> uh, the safest 
language for this question of infant salvation or infant damnation is the language of the original confession, the original 1647 confession. Elect infants dying in infancy are saved by a work of grace. Which means that God is the one who determines the salvation of infants. And here he's determining the damnation of infants. I don't know how you avoid it here in this text. I don't know how you avoid it in the flood, which Noah experienced. There were infant babies that were drowned in that deluge. There were only eight people that were saved in that whole generation. They were the eight people who were shut up in the ark along with Noah and his family. There were children who died in that flood. They died because of the sinfulness of their own souls. So uh, we, we, we have to be bound by what the scriptures say with respect to this matter of uh, infant destinies and the safest language in view of the full revelation of God on this topic, namely Genesis 6 to 9, Jeremiah chapter 44, chapter 6, chapter 9. The fullest, most comprehensive revelation on this point is that God sovereignly determines these matters and elect infants who do die in infancy are saved by the grace of God through Christ Jesus our Lord, by the operation of the Holy Spirit in a way that we do not understand, but in a way in which he applies the benefits of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ even to their infant souls. To every infant? No. Jeremiah 44, 7 says no. To every infant? No. Noah's flood says no. To every infant? No. Jeremiah 6, 11, 9, 21 says no. To elect infants, yes. How many elect infants? God knows. We leave it to God. Even as we leave you to God. For you see, we cannot see your election either. And so we are left with elect adults dying in adulthood are saved by the grace of God. It is true for us, as it is true for infants, as it is true for all human beings at whatever stage of life they are when they die. We are shut up to the sovereignty of God, realizing, or do we not realize, realizing that none of us, from the moment we take our first breath to the time we take our last breath, none of us deserves to go to heaven. None of us, any of us who do go to heaven, go through the grace of God, not because of the innocence of our soul or our life, but we go to heaven by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether we are an infant, one day old, one second old, Whether we are a teenager, whether we are a young adult, whether we are 50 years old, 70 years old, 90 years old, 100 years old, we go to heaven in one way, by one person, by one work, and that is the work of Christ Jesus. Elect anybody are saved by the grace of God. Questions? Have I made a mistake somewhere?
Have I misunderstood the Word of God? Have I misunderstood Reformed theology? Ah, yes, I know. There are many fine Calvinists that believe that all infants dying in infancy are saved. In fact, the Presbyterian Church USA changed the Westminster Confession in 1901 to read that all infants dying in infancy are saved. Does that agree with Jeremiah 44.7? I don't think so. Does it agree with the reality of what was before the flood of Noah and how many perished and what kind of individuals at what stages of life perished? No, I'm bound by the word of God. I'm bound by God's own grace. And I'm bound by the reality that all who come into the world come into the world in a state of original sin. And as Jonathan Edwards said when he was asked, how soon does a child sin? He says, as soon as it's able. And any nursing mother will know that they're very able very, very soon. I trust that we understand upon what foundation we judge this issue. It's not on the basis of sentiment. It's not on the basis of some romantic notion of childhood innocence. It's based upon what the Word of God says. And the fundamental premise of the Word of God is, in Adam all die. In Adam all are exposed to death. Because in Adam all sinned. That's Romans 5, 12 to 14. Now, you may not like that. You may reject that. If so, you're happy to become an Arminian. You're happy to become a person who rejects the notion of original sin, like a Pelagian. That's fine. But that's not what the Bible teaches. And sooner or later, that notion will cause you to believe that every child is pristinely righteous and innocent. And you will behave that way towards that child and spoil it to death. Spoil it rotten. You will never restrain it. You will only promote that attitude in it. You will overlook its innate, native, evil, wickedness and depravity. Because children are wicked and evil. They are cruelly wicked and evil. And unless they are trained in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, they will abandon themselves to that. And that's the reason that the gospel of grace is brought to bear, and the gospel of repentance is brought to bear upon children from a very young age. They are taught that they are sinners. From the time they're able to understand what a sinner is, they're taught that they are sinners and that they need the grace of Christ. And if you don't teach them that, if you withhold them, if you treat them as if they're something other, you're not doing them any favors. You're lying to them. Because if you believe what the scriptures say, that in Adam all die, the wages of sin is death, You are, as a child, one-year-old, two-year-old, three-year-old, exposed to death. You are liable to death. You could die. You could be an eight-year-old standing at the finishing line of the Boston Marathon and be blown to bits in an instant. You're exposed to death. Which means that I offer you the alternative of being exposed to life everlasting through Jesus Christ the Lord. Why would you withhold such a wonderful 
message from a child. Why would you not take that child on your knee at two and a half, three, four, whatever age it could understand, and talk to them in terms that they can understand about the fact that they need to repent of their sins, say they're sorry to, to God for their sins, and hold on to the Lord Jesus Christ because he's the only savior of sinners, even four-year-old sinners. Why wouldn't you not, why would you not tell them that? Which doesn't necessarily mean they're going to accept it, but you see, that's the message you continue to give to the child because you love the child. You don't want the child to perish, do you? You want the child to know what you know, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes. I want you to believe on this only begotten son of God. Otherwise, little four-year-old, little five-year-old, you're going to perish. I love you so much that I tell you the truth. Come to Christ. You're among friends, Lisa. You can get in trouble. (laughs) (laughs) The The sentimentalization of the status of children is a is a remnant of Victorian England. It is not a uh, it, it is not a reformed doctrine. And consequently, we've allowed the culture to set the tone with respect to our attitude towards children without realizing that our children are, are fallen in Adam and fallen in terms of their own sinful behavior. And the greatest love that we have in terms of taking the vow of baptism when we present them is that we will train them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Why would we nurture them or admonish them? Why would we say we're going to do that if we don't need to warn them, if we don't need to teach them, if we don't need to love them to the point of, I don't want you to die eternally. I don't want you to go to hell. I don't want that for you. I'm pleading with you to come to the Lord Jesus Christ and give up your sinful behavior and turn away from your sinful attitude, whether you're a bully, whether you're just nasty to your sister or whatever it happens to be. I want you to turn from that. That's the gospel. It's the gospel for little children, even as it's the gospel for us. All right, now, 2 verse 17, and the identity of the queen of heaven. Who is she? She is the goddess Ishtar, a Babylonian deity, known in Canaan as Astarte, and worshipped as, worshipped in Babylon and in Canaan as a fertility goddess. So, we now have another one of the abominations that Jeremiah is labeling with this group of people as they go down into Egypt to worship their idols. They're going to worship the uh, Queen of Heaven. They're going to be involved in a fertility cult. That means sexual prostitution. That means sexual immorality. 
These people are obsessed with what obsesses most human beings. The sexualization of human nature. The sexualization of our own generation, culture. You can virtually, you virtually cannot turn your TV on anymore and be away from it. It's insidious. It's ugly. And it destroys the wonderful gift that God has given because it makes it cheap and tawdry. But now we have Hollywood movie stars talking about, we have an open marriage. We can sleep with whoever they want and still come home. So, Good is evil. Adultery is good. Multiple adulteries are good. No. No, they're not. And, of course, this eats into the fabric of the nation as well as in the fabric of the family. So sooner or later, when the chickens come home to roost, see, the family will be increasingly fragmented. And the only refuge... For a true godly family will be the church of Jesus Christ, would be the only bastion left. If we hold the line on what marriage should be. If we don't, if we allow the culture to dictate what marriage is, even as the gay lobbyists, you may have noticed that gay uh, lesbian who has said the issue in our attack on same-sex marriage, our demand for same-sex marriage is to destroy marriage. That's the dirty little secret of that political movement. And there's one of the best spokesmen, a lesbian who has said it straight out, to destroy marriage, to destroy the nuclear family as we understand it, to destroy what God established. Why? Because they hate God, that's why. Because they hate the institutions of God. Those institutions restrain, restrict, and inhibit them. They want to smash those restrictions. They want to smash those inhibitions. They want no limitations. The end of which is ultimately death, both physical and eternal. We plead with them. We beg them. For the love of God, repent and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in conclusion tonight, the prophetic narrative biography of the prophet Jeremiah ends here in chapter 44. The story of the prophet Jeremiah ends in Egypt. The last word, the final sentence of Jeremiah, is spoken in the ancient land of bondage. And having uttered his valedictory, his parting word, Jeremiah disappears from the narrative vanishes from the stage with not even an obituary. No death notice. Nothing. Nothing to complement the birth announcement which commences this book of Jeremiah in chapter 1. No departed this life as a counterpart to born today in Anathoth. 
It is father joyously celebrated his entrance into the world with the announcement, it's a boy, chapter 20, verse 15. No voice is raised at his demise. No cry of grief when Jeremiah dies. No tears of sorrow for this weeping prophet, this prophet of tears. No litany of psalms accompanying him or his beer to the grave. Nothing. Nothing but silence. We have no closure to Jeremiah's personal biography as if his life ends open to the future. <clears throat> or does his life end tragically in forced exile? Exile coerced upon him by his own people, his own who compel him to descend into Egypt, his own who compel him to end his life in the place of bondage, the place of bondage where Israel began her life, the house of bondage, Egypt, Mitzrayim in Hebrew. The place where Israel and Judah's story begins in that location, Jeremiah ends his story. Mitzrayim, Egypt, Jeremiah's life's end, bound to the once upon a time house of bondage. Location, location, location. Not Babylon for Jeremiah's end. Not Judah for Jeremiah's end. Not that land of exile for the remnant according to the election of grace. Not that land of future promise where Jeremiah owns a field, owns a field near Anathoth, chapter 32, verses 6 to 9. No, neither the land of remnant refuge in Babylon nor the land of future return in Palestine, neither land, for the end of Jeremiah's story. Jeremiah's story ends in the land of cursed bondage, a literal reverse exodus back to Egypt, as if to say the history of redemption from Moses to King Zedekiah is a history of failure, a history which advances no further than its starting point. Where Israel's history begins under Moses, Jeremiah's history ends. In that land of bitter bondage, Jeremiah is forced to taste the bitter end, the bitter end of ridicule, rejection, rebellion, the bitter end of death. Jeremiah folded down into the very curse he utters against his own disobedient countrymen who compel him to abandon the land of Judah and settle in the land which God had warned King Jehoiakim and King Zedekiah not to pursue, not to lean on Egypt a broken reed, not to trust for aid. Egypt, a land whose Pharaoh Hophra had turned tail 
turned tail coward-like and abandoned Judah to her fate of death while using Judah, using Judah as a buffer. Judah useful as a buffer, but never truly embraced as an ally to defend with Egyptian blood, precious Egyptian non-Semitic blood. Jeremiah now coerced to a land of a cowardly Pharaoh by a cowardly band of Judeans, cowardly Judeans who turn their backs and run, flee from the buffer refuge, flee life in order to descend prisoners of death. Jeremiah's end in Egypt land, in bondage land, in coward's land. Jeremiah's end where Israel began. Jeremiah, back to the beginning. Jeremiah, back to the beginning to wait. The protological Jeremiah waits in Egypt, waits for the end, waits for the end of his life, waits for his end where Israel's story of salvation began, waits, the protological Jeremiah waits for a new beginning. Having descended into Egypt, Jeremiah waits to ascend out of Egypt. The protological Jeremiah waits to come up out of Egypt in a new beginning in the history of redemption for the people of God. A new beginning in the history of redemption when God will bring his servant up out of Egypt. Out of Egypt have I called my eschatological servant prophet. Out of Egypt have I called the eschatological Jeremiah, saith the Lord. An eschatological Jeremiah called up out of Egypt, a new beginning in the history of redemption, an eschatological release from bondage, an eschatological salvation and liberation from oppression, an eschatological prophet with an eschatological role as the central figure in an eschatological exodus, an eschatological Jeremiah who resumes the story from the place to which the protological Jeremiah descended, and he inaugurates the eschatological new beginning, the eschatological new exodus, the eschatological age of salvation in release from bondage, freedom from the tyranny of the principalities and powers of this present evil age, an eschatological exodus from death itself. For this Jeremiah, this eschatological Jeremiah, comes up out of Egypt alive. He ascends from the land of death bondage with life everlasting. This eschatological Jeremiah exits the land of Egypt bringing salvation, forgiveness of sin full and free, grace upon grace, life overflowing in abundance of righteousness, sinlessness, vicariousness, blessedness, life 
from the dead, life for the dead, this eschatological Jeremiah is the life, resurrection life, life ever-living life, life everlasting, life in resurrection glorification, gifted life, granted life, graciously donated life to those who come up out of Egypt with him, in him, through him. Out of Egypt have I called my son, who goes down to the place where Israel's history began, who goes down to the place where Jeremiah's history ended, God's son, our Lord Jesus, who goes down into Egypt, that he may bring us up out of Egypt with him, that he may bring Jeremiah up out of Egypt with him. The eschatological Jeremiah folds down into himself the protological Jeremiah together with the eschatological Israel of God so as to bring them up in the new and eschatological exodus for the people of God, which is accomplished once and for all in Christ Jesus. The story of Jeremiah ends in Egypt because that is where the story of Jesus begins. And you belong to that story, you who have come up out of Egypt in the new exodus of God's only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus, the eschatological Jeremiah. The closure to the life of Jeremiah awaits the coming of Jesus of Nazareth. Let us pray. We bless you for this remarkable prophet, Lord. So wonderfully an image and mirror of your son. One who weeps as Jesus wept. Weeps over Jerusalem as Jesus wept. One rejected by his own as Jesus was rejected, one who goes down into Egypt as Jesus goes down into Egypt. We thank you that a greater than Jeremiah is here. He has imaged and projected himself from the 52 chapters of this book into the life of the age to come and has given us good hope and the insight not only into a new covenant, but the insight into a new exodus. Lord, we march with that pilgrim band, the pilgrims of the eschatological age to come, Sojourners in a wilderness of this world, bound for a heavenly Canaan. Bless to us the drama of this narrative, as you bless to us 
the life of your Son, the Son of the living God, whose story is hidden and revealed in this narrative as it is hidden and revealed in the life of the prophet Jeremiah. We bless your name for these wonders through your grace to us in Christ Jesus. Amen. Chapter 45 and following next week, we'll get somewhere beyond 46. You might read up to 47, 48. We do have to talk about chapter 45 as well. But I haven't solved that one yet. I need another week.